Hi, everyone, and welcome to Future of Health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria, here in the Dash Studio in Hollywood, California, bringing you the very latest in healthcare trends and news each week. And today we're joined by Dr. Veronica Zantop from Providence St. Joseph Health, and we'll be talking about postpartum depression and anxiety today. We're also going to be joined later on in the show by special guest Timoria McQueen Saba, a maternal health advocate, speaker, and writer. Now remember, we encourage all of our listeners to write in with your questions for our experts via social media. You can find us on our Twitter handle, at PSJH, as well as on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. And you can also hit us up on Instagram at PSJH as well. And don't forget to use the hashtag Future of Health. That's hashtag Future of Health. And we'll be sure to be on the lookout for those throughout the show. So let's get it started first by welcoming everyone to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Veronica Zantop. Thank you for being in studio with us and talking about this very important topic. Thank you, Julie. So first off, if you could just sort of tell us about your role as it pertains to Providence St. Joseph Health. So um, I'm a perinatal psychiatrist, uh, Swedish, um, which is affiliated with Providence St. Joseph or one of their hospitals. Mm -hmm. And by perinatal, that's really, um, we see patients before they get pregnant and then when they get pregnant and after they deliver. So throughout that whole period. Um, And I treat women that have mood and anxiety disorders in pregnancy and postpartum. Just the word postpartum, because I I just want to address this for our listeners, because it is the title of our show today. Postpartum, if we could just explain, if you could explain exactly what it means and as it pertains to depression and anxiety. Yeah, that is an excellent question. So traditionally, people talk about postpartum depression as happening after you deliver a baby and, and where women are at risk for that. And they've actually recently started to rethink the concept. So not only is it postpartum, but postpartum is kind of a, postpartum depression is an umbrella term for a lot of different things that happen both in pregnancy and postpartum. So they're talking about it more as perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And for two reasons, one, because they frequently start in pregnancy. So it's not something that just suddenly happens when you deliver your baby. And postpartum really refers to the period when you deliver your baby up to a year after having a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that's gotten more attention recently is that it very frequently is not just depression that women are experiencing, it's actually a lot of anxiety. Mm. And the problem with calling it postpartum depression is that a lot of women don't come for treatment because they're not necessarily feeling really sad or they're not feeling suicidal and they don't feel like help is out there for them or that they have an issue. And this is a word, I guess, sort of a buzzword when they talk about postpartum depression. This is something that personally I hadn't even heard, nor was in my sphere of relevance, probably till maybe about, I would say, I don't know, five, six, seven, not more than 10 years ago is my point. And it was only brought to light when Brooke Shields, the actress, admitted to having an issue and having struggled with it. Before then, I had never even heard of this. Yeah. Is that something that, that you find? I mean, I think it's amazing given that women have had babies forever. Sure. This has just come up now and it's so common. So it is the most common complication of pregnancy. So much more common than um, hypertension, high blood pressure or diabetes. Um, and I think it's, you know, I don't know why there's more attention now than ever before. Yeah. I think it's, it's obviously a woman's issue. Um, and you know, traditionally women are supposed to be really happy in pregnancy and postpartum, and it's been seen as a time of joy and well-being and you know, kind of everyone's glowing. And, but when they started doing research into it, they found that a lot of women were actually not happy um, and that depression and anxiety were more common in pregnancy and much more common in the postpartum period. Um, I think women are reluctant to talk about it because of the stigma associated with it. So they feel like they're supposed to be a good mom, and if they admit to having mood or anxiety symptoms, then it might indicate that they're not a good parent, or that they shouldn't be parenting, or mm-hmm. um, you know that their baby should be taken from them. It's it's really it's hard for women to talk about. But I have to say that you know I've been working at um, Swedish uh, Providence St. Joseph's for about 10 years, and things have changed pretty dramatically, where my patients now want to talk about it, and they want to talk about it with other women, and they want to get the word out and say, you know, this is so common, and we can treat it. Just come in and get treatment. 
Yeah, it's amazing. You mentioned that, you know, women have been having babies for hundreds, thousands of years. And yet we are just now in the past 10 years having this conversation. How common is postpartum depression and anxiety? Yes. One thing that's really interesting about postpartum depression and anxiety is that about 64 or up to 65% of women who have never been depressed before um, and will develop depression in the postpartum period. Um, so a lot of women don't even know what it's like to experience depression or anxiety. It's really a biological phenomenon. And so I, I hate that they call it a disorder. It's more, I like to think of it as a condition of pregnancy and postpartum. What causes it? You say it's a biological disorder. Is it chemicals? Is it hormones? Is it, how does it sort of manifest? That is a great question, and they're trying to figure that out. So what they do know is that women's brains during pregnancy and postpartum are flooded with hormones, and the hormones are constantly shifting. And the hormones are stabilized during pregnancy, and then you deliver, and they crash. Um, and then when you're breastfeeding, there are hormonal changes. When you get your menstrual cycle back, there are hormonal changes. And what they know is that these huge amounts of hormones have profound effects on the female brain. And so there are a lot of um, structural and functional kind of neurobiological changes in women's brains that have been handed down over millennia uh, to make women more fiercely protective of their babies, um, more motivated, more able to focus on their baby's survival. And that's great, maybe for cave women, where you know they're kind of getting ready for you know, to protect their baby against a saber-toothed tiger or, and I don't mean to speak for, for I'm sure they had other issues to worry about, okay, women. But um, nowadays there's just, there's so many expectations of new moms. Moms can Google everything, you know, they have to see their pediatrician and there are all these guidelines for their babies. They're driving, um, they're reading the newspaper, they know what's going on, you know, all over the world. And so your brain is, is really sensitized to danger but it no longer can distinguish like what's really dangerous and what's not. You know, when you're reading the newspaper about a war somewhere, your brain might start to freak out, um, even though it's not, you know, in your home or in your in town. your backyard. Yeah, sure. in your backyard, exactly. So everything's scary. Driving's scary. And of course, and you're worried about your child and sometimes, you know, with a new baby, they're crying and you don't know why. Or, you know, maybe it could be, you know, you don't know if you should take your child to the emergency room or if it's, you know, or if they need an inoculation or something like that. How is it diagnosed? And sort of if you could describe the varying degrees or levels when it comes to this anxiety, depression disorder. Um, So the first two to 12 days postpartum is really a period called the baby bloom period. So about 60 to 80% of all women feel really exhausted or um, can't sleep well or have mood swings or cry at everything at the drop of a hat. And that is not really postpartum depression, even though it does increase your risk for that. And that typically resolves by about 12 days after delivery. Um, After that, if you have persistent symptoms, then um, it's an issue. the way that it is identified is either women come in, and they very frequently, when they see their OB doctor, don't say, I'm depressed or I'm anxious. Um, they'll say, you know, I feel overwhelmed. I don't feel like myself. I'm really irritated with my husband or partner all the time. Um, I keep having these scary thoughts, and I can't turn my brain off. So those are the ways in which it frequently presents and the way women talk about it. And then their partners are very much aware of, you know, changes in their, in their partner, and so they will urge their, their, the woman to come in because you know she's not sleeping. They notice when the baby's sleeping or she's on Google all night long or she's you know hovering over the baby's crib watching to make sure that they're breathing or she just seems really stressed. So it's, you know, a lot of women come to a medical attention either because they're not feeling right or because their partners are identifying that. What's great is that they're uh, doing a lot more screening now. So they're encouraging family med doctors and OB providers and pediatricians to screen women. And not only to screen them in the postpartum, but to screen them in pregnancy too, because that's when it can start. Mm. And the sooner you treat it, the better. So if you can treat it even before pregnancy, during pregnancy, then you're really preventing the postpartum symptoms. Um, We have some great screening tools. There's a screening tool called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, which is actually used both in pregnancy and postpartum that looks that was created for pregnant women. So it doesn't ask about how's your sleep and how's your mm. energy. It really looks at how are you enjoying life and are you looking forward to things and 
um, are you having a lot of anxiety, overwhelming anxiety? Interesting. And what about postpartum OCD? What are the symptoms of that? I've, I've actually never heard of postpartum OCD. Yeah, the two kind of postpartum conditions that are being talked about more now is the postpartum OCD and PTSD. And OCD can be particularly scary um, because it's not what you see in movies, you know, where people are just washing their hands all the time or mm -hmm. checking locks. What, what happens, and that can happen, but what happens is that women, because their brains are more sticky and, and they have more kind of scary thoughts happening in their brains, they end up having these kind of unexpected thoughts about something really bad happening to their baby or them actually doing something really bad to their baby, which uh, are called intrusive thoughts. And those can be extraordinarily scary. I mean, women have thoughts about stabbing their baby by mistake when they're in the kitchen or drowning their baby or throwing their baby out the window, um, even molesting their baby. And those are not uncommon. They actually happen quite frequently. The problem is that they're so horrifying to women mm -hmm. that then they end up causing even more anxiety. Um, and women really feel like they're going crazy. Um, and they don't want to talk about it necessarily because they're concerned that someone's going to take their baby away. And the reality is that it's really part of an anxiety disorder. And so if women are having, if it's horrifying to women, and you're like, that is not consistent with who I am, you know, that's not. I would never hurt my baby. That's actually a good thing, that there's that discrepancy, um, because that really indicates that it's OCD and that you're not at increased risk of hurting your baby. Mm -hmm. um, but there's good treatment for it. What kind of treatments? Is there medication that you can take before or after childbirth to either prevent or help treat this? Yep, absolutely. Um, What's interesting about OCD is that a lot of women have never had OCD before that develop postpartum OCD. So I think in the general population, it's about 3%. In the postpartum, they found that up to 12% of women have OCD. It doesn't mean that you have OCD forever, um, but it really is kind of the postpartum brain that creates this kind of OCD environment. Um, treatment is uh, medications and therapy. And one thing we talk a lot about is that women can take medications in pregnancy and they can take medications in the postpartum while they're nursing. How long can postpartum depression, and, and when I say postpartum depression, I'm talking about the OCD, I'm talking about the anxiety and the depression itself, how long can that last? So clinically, postpartum is really one year postpartum. Mm -hmm. And when they look at the kind of changes that happen in women's brains and how long, there was one study that looked at women hospitalized for these disorders and saw that the, the rate of hospitalizations is much higher during the first year. So it can last up to a year or more. Um, when it's treated, people get better much faster. And I think that's the amazing thing about this, I think, is it's very common. It has a profound effect on the woman and on her baby. So there's a lot of research that indicates that if babies are um, exposed to anxiety and depression, that they have long-term kind of neurologic and biological consequences from that, um, so that they are at increased risk for um, conduct disorders and ADHD and uh, a greater risk for depression or anxiety themselves um, and even suicide attempts later in life. When they're exposed in utero because the mother is going through it or when they're exposed postpartum when they're very young? Yeah, so when they're exposed postpartum, they think it has um, serious consequences for bonding and that leads to longer term effects on emotional and behavioral, I'm sorry, emotional and behavioral and cognitive skills. Oh my goodness, so this, this could affect not only the mother but also extend to the child as well. Yes, and you know, I hate to talk about this to women because it always seems like women are being blamed for something or it's another reason to say, well, you're not a good mom. Like if you're exposing your baby to this, you're gonna ruin their, you know, their life essentially. Right. But I like to spin it in a more positive way. Like, this doesn't just affect you, it affects your baby. And so the better you're doing, and we really want to focus on making you a happy mom, the better you're doing, the better your baby's going to do. And so get the help. And, and the, the great news is that these disorders or these conditions um, get better so quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see so many women who come in and are so anxious. Two, three weeks later, they're way better. They're like back to baseline almost and are able to enjoy their baby. And there's nothing really more rewarding than that, I'd say. Absolutely. 
Well, this is an absolutely fascinating conversation. We have to take a quick break, but I do want to touch back on this, and we will come back around. We'll continue the conversation with Dr. Veronica Zantop in just a moment. You are listening to Dash Radio. It's Future of Health. Radio with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm Julie Alexandria. Joining me in studio, Dr. Veronica Zantop. We're talking about postpartum depression, anxiety, and OCD. Fascinating topic and, and also a very hot button topic that a lot of moms, there's so many sites, so many vlogs and blogs that are devoted to this. So I'm so happy we're having this conversation. There's a lot of stigma around telling your doctor that you don't feel right after giving birth or even telling your friends, I feel like telling your family and admitting that maybe having a baby is not the most happiest time in your life. There's a fear of possibly having your baby taken away, as you mentioned in our last segment, or to being hospitalized, institutionalized, depending on how negative those thoughts are affecting you. How do we reduce the stigma and get mothers to feel more comfortable talking about maybe not feeling so fabulous after having a child or even being pregnant for that matter. 
You know, I think the stigma is so unfortunate because it really keeps women from getting the help that they need. And, and they find that only about 15% of all the women that are suffering from mood or anxiety get help. Um, so I think in terms of the stigma, I mean, one is just important, you know, for everyone to be educated about the fact that this is really a biological condition. It is not because you're not a good person. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's not because you're not white knuckling it enough. You know, there's, it really is, the, you know, it's caused by profound changes in your brain, um, even when you're not pregnant or postpartum. But I think, you know, a lot of women in the postpartum period develop thyroid issues, for example, and no one's blaming them for coming into their doctor to say, you know, I might have a thyroid issue. It just, it, you know, no one would even think of, of bringing that up. And so I think um, having women, having podcasts like this is super helpful just to, to let women know that, you know, 20% of all women have this. That's huge. Mm. I mean, there's nothing else, you know, that occurs like in 20% um, in the postpartum. So having women talk about their struggles, um, having them feel empowered, you know, when they're in, in groups like PEPs, for example, we have a lot of women in PEPs groups or... Um, what is PEPs groups? So it's a group in Seattle for new moms, essentially. And so new moms, I think they start when their babies are about six weeks old and they get together on a weekly basis, either just the mom or the couple. And they talk about sleep and, you know, feeding and just kind of basic issues. And they've added to their curriculum a big mental health segment. I think what's interesting is a lot of women I see, you know, that go to PEPs, they're like, I'm the only person who's depressed, everyone else, everything's going great. And then they're meeting with this group up to one year postpartum. And then all the women are like, oh my God, all the women in the group, I was so depressed and I was so anxious and I, you know, I felt so alone. And so we're just encouraging women to bring it up because it's really an issue. And um, it's, it's nice to feel like you're, you know, supported and other other amazing, very cool women suffering from this. Um, I mean, this is <laughs> going to sound silly, but the patients I have that suffer from this, there's just so much guilt about it, and people feel so terrible about themselves. They are the most amazing women I've ever met in my life. You know, I mean, these are incredibly high-functioning, um, beautiful women, and they just feel so bad when they're suffering from mood and anxiety symptoms. What's the most common thing that they say? Well, is there any sort of common thread between your patients that everyone kind of mentions or complains about? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the one thing that, I mean, the thing that is most devastating to me is just that they feel so much guilt and they feel like they're a terrible mother. Um, and it's hard to carry that around, especially when everyone around you is like, oh, you must be so happy and your baby's so cute and, you know, isn't this wonderful? And internally, you're feeling like, this is awful. Like, I'm not sleeping. I can't breastfeed. I'm feeling anxious. My chest is tight. I, you know, I feel like I'm jumping out of my skin. Like, this is not the way I'm supposed to feel. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing is that there's really, it's hard to detect frequently because you can't tell on the surface if someone's really suffering frequently. And I think especially with depression and anxiety, it's hard to tell. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, but I think the guilt is, is huge and feeling, feeling like they're really not um, meeting expectations, especially kind of societal expectations of motherhood. Sure, feeling less than. And mm -hmm. there is such a high standard. And I think with social media, as great as the chat rooms and the blogs and, you know, that feeling of inclusivity, there's also a feeling of alienation because here you are, you're up all night, you're, you know, breastfeeding your child and they're waking up all the time. You have to feed them either with formula or not. And you're on your phone and you're scrolling mm -hmm. through Instagram and you're seeing all these perfect, seemingly yeah. pictures of perfect moms and they've lost all their baby weight just four weeks later. Exactly. And they're back in the gym and they're looking so fabulous and designer baby clothes with a matching outfit. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen that all and I'm not even there yet, but it's like, yeah. that, that's enough to make anyone feel less than. So, yeah, they're just really impossible standards. Yeah. You know, just getting up and getting out of the house should be enough. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like I, some some clothing on. <laughs> they put a car seat together. Right. I'm good. It's amazing. Right. I've done enough for the day. Now, what is, if any, is there anything that uh, moms to be, pregnant women or postpartum uh, women who are in the postpartum stage, is there anything they can do taken upon themselves as far as vitamins or supplements or eating the placenta? I don't know. Is there anything that they can do to prevent or to maybe lessen the um, possibility of, of suffering from postpartum depression and anxiety? 
When they look at some of the risk factors um, for depression and anxiety, those are definitely malleable, or there are some things that you can do to protect against um, postpartum mood and anxiety. And sleep is a big one. So, and, and sleep is, I mean, that sounds so ridiculous, like who's actually sleeping when they have a baby. But for us, the, you know, making sure that moms are sleeping when their babies are sleeping and that their babies aren't asleep and they're awake, you know, again, looking on their computer or watching the baby or doing other things. So really focusing on sleep and letting your provider know pretty quickly if you're not able to sleep or if you're having racing thoughts that keep you from sleeping, um, kind of nipping that in the bud is really, really helpful. Support is so helpful. So, and I always say, you know, have family, you know, et cetera. And then I've realized over the course of the past 10 years treating women that family's not always supportive or helpful. And mm -hmm. um, so it's really just, you know, being able to mobilize people. And instead of having people come over and feeling like you have to then host them and cook them meals and things like that, mm -hmm. to say, yeah, we'd love to have you come over if you could do a, a couple loads of laundry and, and bring a pizza, you know, on your way. Um, so really partner support is important. I think it's sometimes hard for partners to um, understand what's going on with women and to be able to support them in the right way. So they do have some checklists for partners too, kind of how to support women that um, you can access online. And then self-care is so important, coming up with kind of a postpartum wellness plan where you, you know, put bottles of water around your house so that you're not, whenever you're sitting there nursing or playing with your baby, that you have water or you have food, you know, having someone prep vegetables even for dinner, mm -hmm. um, knowing that you'll have some free time uh, just for yourself is really important. And then making sure that somebody can take a shift at night if possible so that you can get more than three hours of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to open up the forum to social media, obviously hot button topic. We've got a lot of questions pouring in. Um, so for you, doctor, if you don't mind, this is uh, from Brenda on Facebook, wants to know, is postpartum something that can be treated by a PCP or an OBGYN, or do you need to bring in a mental health specialist? So I think as there's more attention on this subject, um, a lot of primary care doctors are treating it and identifying it. Uh, psychiatrists end up generally only seeing about 10% of all patients who have mood or anxiety disorders, and, and PCPs are the ones picking it up and treating them. Um, so it, it can be treated by anybody. I think if it's more severe, so if there's any suicidality, um, if women are having really bad uh, intrusive thoughts um, or avoidance, which comes from those thoughts like not being able to drive or not being able to you know, uh, bathe your baby, things like that, mm -hmm. then it would probably be good to see um, a specialist. But I would say for routine mood and anxiety, absolutely. Carolyn on Twitter asks, what is the difference between exhaustion and postpartum, and how do you know? How can you tell? That is also an excellent question. I think a lot of the women I see say, well, how do I know that this isn't just normal? You know, I'm a new mom. I'm supposed to be anxious. And I, you know, it's really a matter of how you're functioning. A little anxiety is okay, and a little anxiety keeps us all alive. You know, <laughs> if we didn't have any anxiety, we just walk out in the street, or you know. Right. Um, but you know, if you're not able to sleep, if you're feeling irritable, if you're having racing thoughts and can't shut your brain down, if you're really not functioning the way that you normally would function, then then it's more than just exhaustion. Then you should go see someone. Um, and even exhaustion, I think I talk more about anxiety, but even exhaustion, I mean, if that's coupled with feeling guilt or feeling hopeless or not enjoying anything, including your baby, mm -hmm. then uh, it's a good time to seek help. Tiffany on Facebook asks, how do you broach the conversation with someone if you think that they might be experiencing postpartum depression? That's a really good question too, especially because of the stigma, and I think because moms feel like uh, they're being judged um, you know, I think just asking general questions like, how are things going? How's your sleep? You know, have you been feeling overwhelmed? How is your energy? Um, is there anything that you feel like isn't going that well? Things like that. Mm -hmm. And just open up the discussion. Um, you know, it's also worth mentioning that so many women go through this. Uh, it's very, very common. So, um, you know, just so women don't feel like they're alone in going through this. So important. And Lindsay on Twitter asks, can you get postpartum before giving birth? And is it hormonal? And you're, you're saying yes. Yes, yep, I, both actually. I think it's, I mean, it can be hormonal. There's other things at play as well. 
um, and the sleep deprivation, you know, all the adjustments that you make. So there's a lot of both biological factors and psychological factors, um, but absolutely. And so we try to really identify women you know, so women who have a history of depression and anxiety, we want to see them before they get pregnant to talk about, you know, should they be on medications? What are other things they could be doing? You know, therapy, um, more support, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then during pregnancy, we screen patients pretty frequently. So when they first come in and then um, every couple of months, just to make sure that they're not developing symptoms, which is very common. And then, um, and then in the postpartum as well. So it really is, again, it's not something that just starts when you deliver. Right. Is it genetic at all? Has there been any studies linking perhaps a grandmother or a mother to a current pregnant woman or, you know, have you seen it run in families? You know, that is a good question. I know that there's a predisposition, but I don't know the actual numbers on that. And tell us about the partial hospitalization program at the Center for Perinatal Bonding and Support. How is this program different from other methods and other treatments? So at Swedish, we have a center called the Center for Perinatal Bonding and Support. And again, we, we took care in naming it so it doesn't, it's not called the psychiatric center or the center for, you know, it's really, we're just trying to support you. Right. <laughs> and this no common labels. experience. Right. Um, and in that center, we have psychiatrists who see patients for medication management and to do an initial evaluation. And we also have a bunch of therapists who specialize in different parts of postpartum. So we have therapists who you know, specialize in bonding and therapists who specialize in PTSD and therapists who specialize in OCD. What our program has that's, that's unique is we have a partial hospitalization program, which is, it's different from inpatient treatment where you are hospitalized and you stay overnight but it's fairly intense. It's almost like going to school. So it's six hours a day, um, and women come in with their babies, um, which is also something that doesn't happen with other treatment. And the whole program is really structured around um, basic things, so helping women get out of the house, creating structure for them, making sure they're not isolated, um, and giving them an opportunity to feel less alone and also to help other women. Um, the program itself is six hours a day, four days a week. And what happens during the program is it's a, based on a group model of care. So women are in a group with their babies. They also get some individual counseling um, and some family counseling. But they are learning coping skills. Um, they do yoga. They go for walks. They do mindfulness exercises. They do baby massage. Uh, there's a bonding curriculum which really focuses on bonding, which can be impaired with when women are having anxiety or mood symptoms. Um, and then they do different kinds of therapy that have been shown to, to help with postpartum mood and anxiety symptoms like cognitive therapy and dialectical therapy and interpersonal therapy, so different modalities that really help. They're very kind of structured, manualized um, therapy, which pretty much, I mean, they work very quickly, mm -hmm. all things considered. Um, and then women also just get a chance to reflect on kind of the myths of motherhood and things that get in the way of them feeling like they're good mothers. Mm -hmm. uh, they form bonds, so a lot of the women that we've had go through the program are still in touch with each other and supporting each other. Uh, so, so that's the essential program. Women stay for you know between one to three weeks on average um, and get significantly better. Wow, and I'm sure a big part of that is at the root of it, it's establishing a sense of community, mm -hmm. which is so important. It is, yeah. I mean, it takes a village, you know, it really does. And women tend to be very isolated in society, and especially if their partner's gone back to work and then they're just sitting at home all day with the baby, that this gives them the opportunity to, to get out and to have a community. Sure. Well, we're gonna take a break, but when we come back, we're gonna be joined by our special guest, Tamora McQueen Saba, and she's gonna share her personal journey as it pertains to postpartum depression and anxiety. We'll be right back. Beautiful, 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 beautiful angel Love your imperfections, every anger Tomorrow comes and goes before you know So I just had to let you know the way that Gucci look on you
watch your mom found out Guess that we just really had the thunder Ain't nobody else that I be under Beautiful, beautiful life right now Beautiful, beautiful night right now No, no, no to Future of Health here on Dash Radio with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm Julie Alexandria. Joining us now to continue the conversation about postpartum depression and anxiety is Tamoria McQueen-Saba. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamoria. How are you? I'm great, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Wonderful. So if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background and your story. Sure. So I have a pretty unusual entry into uh, the field of maternal health advocacy. For several years, I was actually a celebrity makeup artist, and that was I was always obsessed with fashion and beauty growing up, and I entered the corporate beauty world in my early 20s and pursued my passions in that. And many years later, uh, after I got married and was pregnant with my first daughter, um, I had a great a pregnancy, no major complications, no pre-existing conditions, and pretty much the ideal vision of what most people would consider pregnancy to be all the way through. The day that I went into labor, everything pretty much changed. I went in and I was having an unusually long labor, but sometimes I think that, you know, we, we look at birth and labor at things that we kind of see on TV. And so in my mind, even though it was a long labor, I was kind of thinking, oh, this is just like on TV. So there were even points where, you know, I was like, when am I going to walk around with the oxygen tank? You know what I mean? Like, you know, just the things that you, yeah, I want to walk around with the machines and I need to pace, you know, all these things. I want to sit on my my big ball and stretch my legs and all these things that you've seen on TV. And so I was uh, helping the time pass by doing all the things that I've you know, seen on TV for so many years, but not realizing that, wow, this labor is really long and, and that, that could be an issue. So I was given uh, Pitocin to induce and help move things along. And this was, I was about 27 hours in Oof. when it was finally, yeah, <laughs> when it was finally time. I was, I was fully dilated only after 27 hours. So, um, yeah. So after I, gave birth, I held my daughter for maybe a minute or two. And I could see that the mood in the room had completely changed. And all of a sudden, I looked up at the TV monitor because I was very aware of the mood having changed, but I had no visuals yet. But when I looked into the TV, I could see the reflection. The TV was off. 
and I could see blood pouring out of my body. So this is 2010, this is my first child, and I'm thinking, well, blood is a part of giving birth. At that point in time, I didn't think anything had, had gone amiss. And then my doctor announced that I was hemorrhaging. And so my daughter was taken away, put back in the bassinet, and her and my husband were taking, taken to the nursery. All of a sudden, the mood in the room really intensified. The next thing I know, the blood pressure machines were beeping the emergency warning. Beep, beep. You know, and obviously, again, my reference for birth, and I think most people's references, you know, thinking about what you see on TV. So you're, you're, you know, you have this, when you go into the hospital, you have this way of remembering every single part of it that happens to you, all the sounds, all the looks on people's faces, the mood of the room. And, of course, for me, the most traumatic thing at that point in time that was happening was the fact that I'd only been able to hold my daughter for a couple of minutes, and then she was taken away. Mm. So I was very upset by that. So my doctor told me that I was hemorrhaging, and he said that it was because my uterus wasn't contracting, which is I was having what's called a uterine atony. And so he was massaging my uterus to try to get it to contract, which basically involved his arm going into my body all the way up to his elbows and massaging it around and around. And this went on for about 45 minutes. I have a great relationship with my OBGYN. His name is Dr. Dr. Brescia, but I call him Dr. B, so you'll hear me refer to him mostly as Dr. B. Um, and so my uterus wouldn't contract after 45 minutes of that. He called in an emergency surgeon. And luckily for me, the surgeon was able to get to me within 15 minutes. So he came into my room and he said to me directly, he looked right at me, he said, you know, kid, you're in really bad shape. I don't know if you're going to make it through the night. You might die tonight. And he said, I have to tell you some really, really harsh things and I need you to make some decisions. And so he basically listed out what all of the options looked like for me at that point. As this was going on, I began to vomit on myself. I was receiving a blood transfusion, you know, and so, so many things at the time were traumatic. It was not holding my daughter. It was actually seeing the visuals of the blood in the screen, even the, the looks on the, uh, the clinicians' faces as they were working to try to save me. It was the sound of the surgeon's voice, you know, very, uh, you know, obviously this graveness to it, and I knew how serious it was at that point. And so he gave, this were the options that he laid out, and he said, so uh, you are hemorrhaging, and I'm going to try to give you an embolization, and that hopefully will stop the bleeding. And then he asked me if I wanted to have more children, and I thought that was such a weird question. With everything that was, everything was just so chaotic, and to ask that question, I thought was so crazy. And I just said, "Well, I really don't care. You know, I just want to worry about my daughter that I just gave birth to." And he said, "No, I, I need to know because I need you to understand that if the embolization doesn't work, I'll have to give you a hysterectomy." And I said, "Okay." And he said. If the bleeding doesn't stop after that, you will die tonight. Oh. And so I was immediately taken to and prepped for uh, the emergency surgery. And I had to be awake for the entire surgery so that I could let him know if something was hurting. And so it really looked like a scene, you know, that we've seen a million times on all these, these TV shows like Grey's Anatomy where you know, I'm wheeled in and, there's people watching from behind a glass window. There's a lot of staff, more drugs, more transfusions. And I'm laying there and I'm staring up. I'm completely naked. The room is freezing. And I'm watching each and every stitch that he's doing. And as he's doing each one, he would ask me, do you feel this? Do you feel this? And I would answer no because that was the truth. I didn't feel anything. But again, in terms of thinking about how trauma patients process things, 
and the mental effects of experiencing a birth trauma, at that point in time, the message became clear to me to stop feeling. And when I look back on that, it really played out a lot later into other things that went on in my life when I got back home. I just decided I was going to stop feeling certain things because that was safe. And so I made it through the surgery, and my doctor insisted to the hospital that I needed to be back in labor and delivery so I could see my daughter. The hospital was not happy about that, and we literally bolted, you know, not me. I was, my doctor basically shoved my bed into the elevator when the surgery was done, and we went back up there. And, of course, it was wonderful to see her, and I just remember seeing her eyes in the bassinet, and then she was handed to me, and I looked at her and I said, I promise you, you won't be a motherless child. And, of course, now after several years later of doing this work, and I realized that that's a promise that so many women who experience the same thing, they aren't able to keep. And a lot of them aren't even able to have that conversation with their child because they don't survive um, something like this. And so when I got back home, it was probably about five days later. I think I was in there for five or six days. And everybody in the world thought I had had a C-section, you know, uh, because I was there for so long, but I had a vaginal delivery. And I was sitting home one day on the computer, and Dr. B, he would call me often to check on me to see how I was doing. And this one particular day he called, I was on the computer Googling all these terms, and these were all things I had never looked up before, uh, trauma, hemorrhaging, embolization, you know, just trying to figure out what had happened to me and how I was feeling about it. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. B uh, called while I was doing this, and he said, hi, how are you doing? And I said, I'm good. And he just kind of, you know, I could hear his tone. He, he said, you're good. He said, how can you be good after what you just went through? He said, tell me how you're really feeling. And I said, well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just surviving. I'm, 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 I'm just, you know, I'm feeding the baby. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know, stay clean and breastfeed and do this and do that. And he said, tell me about your schedule and tell me about your activities during the day. And so I walked him through the things that were happening, and I was telling him that I I couldn't sleep. I was only sleeping maybe 45 minutes at night, but I was trying to justify that by saying, well, I'm a new mother. That's probably normal, right? You don't sleep. You're not supposed to sleep. You're supposed to be up looking at your baby. I was all of a sudden afraid to leave the house because I thought something was going to happen to us. I wanted to make sure I had to be the last one to lock the doors. And, you know, as a makeup artist, I traveled all over the world. So all of this, and I'm an only child, too, so I've always been very outgoing. Nothing holds me back from doing anything I want to do in life. And all of a sudden, I had to be just confined and both in control of the four walls that I was in. Mm -hmm. And also in control of uh, where my daughter went, who would see her. And we really only left in the beginning for uh, doctor's appointments. Wow. So as I was telling him all of this, he suggested that I might have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I remember saying to him, that's just so silly. Like, you know, you can't put me in a category with war veterans. There's no comparison. And he said to me, there absolutely is. What you went through is no different than someone who has gone to war in Afghanistan or Iraq or any of these places, and they've experienced a death, a near-death experience, or have watched a traumatic near-death experience. And so it was an interesting context all of a sudden that I I didn't really feel worthy of being in that same category, but it it did make sense. And so I, I, when I looked up post-traumatic stress disorder, That is really where I started to feel like I had a place compared to when you look at the other mood disorders. Right. No, I mean, that's an incredible traumatic 
experience and absolutely should be qualified as PTSD. Why do you think it is so important to raise awareness with this topic? Well, people are afraid to talk about bad things. It doesn't matter what it is. And I think as mothers, you know, society really holds us up to a certain standard where a lot of times we're forced to pretend like everything is okay when sometimes our lives are completely falling apart. And I see it two ways, obviously, because I am African-American. So on one hand, I see it as I'm a woman. I had a traumatic experience. And this is really important just so I can let every woman, no matter who you are, if you've had something like this happen to you, you're not alone. And then, of course, there's the piece where my race obviously comes into play because what was so one of the most difficult parts of this for me was when I first started doing the research and gathering statistics for one of the first articles I wrote about what happened to me was seeing that the statistics were so much higher for black women. I remember reading the sentence over and over again, blacks die due to childbirth and pregnancy complications three to four times more than whites, and I was blown away. And the only thing that really separated me from anybody else who did die, and um, and, and even nowadays we've heard stories where people like Serena Williams had the same thing happen. Yep. The only thing that really at the time was my geographical location and the fact that I have great health care, I had a great OBGYN who knew exactly who to call in terms of being able to do this type of surgery. Mm -hmm. I get calls from women all over the country, um, places like Louisiana and Texas and Georgia, where they have these horrendous mortality rates, and they don't have those same opportunities, and I try to connect them to better um, clinicians um, than the ones they currently have. Oh, that's amazing. so because I went through this twice, you know, I had a miscarriage 13 months later that resulted Mm -hmm. in a of hemorrhage, and it was very public. I had a miscarriage um, in a frozen yogurt shop. I was with my daughter, who was 13 months old at the time, and a friend and her her daughter, who was the same age, and it was just a beautiful, regular day. I went to the bathroom, and I started hemorrhaging in the bathroom. I had no idea I was pregnant, and here I am bolting up the street, and people are looking at me. So again, it's just more trauma on top of trauma, Mm -hmm. and so... When I went through that second time of of experiencing a hemorrhage, that's really where, you know, I felt like, wow, okay, now I've lived through this twice, that statistically speaking, I shouldn't be here. So I felt like, you know, whoever you believe in God or the universe or whatever, how people want to feel about that, was moving me in a way that my life was meant to be used exactly for this purpose. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we appreciate you telling your story so much because this this is the story that our listeners need to hear. And as frightening and scary and traumatic as it is, we appreciate you sharing your story so much and your personal journey with um, the postpartum trauma. So thank you to Moria for for coming on to the show and for sharing your journey. We appreciate it so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, there will be more from the Dash Studios here in Hollywood. I'm Julie Alexandria. We'll be right back.
this war Baby, when both of us are losing This ain't the oh, way the is supposed oh, to go What happened to working it out? We fall into this place where you ain't backing down And I ain't backing down So what the hell do we do now? It's all for nothing We just heard from Tamoria Queen Saba and her personal journey when it comes to postpartum depression and anxiety. So we're continuing the conversation with Dr. Veronica Zantop here in our Dash Radio studio in Hollywood. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, your partnership with Providence St. Joseph Health and your work with Swedish, one of their affiliates. Their mission statement is all about serving the poor and the vulnerable. How have you seen that manifest when it comes to women who are pregnant, who are struggling with postpartum or perhaps had just had their baby and they are of the marginalized, they are perhaps poor and vulnerable. How does that sort of change your approach? So the research has definitely shown that women who have a big stress going on in their life and a lot of psychosocial stressors are at much higher risk for mood and anxiety symptoms. And so that is a big focus of what, what we try to do is to identify um, women who are struggling. They're Swedish uh, in Providence St. Joseph's, but Swedish, uh, where I'm working right now, they have an addiction recovery service where they see patients who um, are using substances in pregnancy and treat them, both stabilize them uh, and treat them for several weeks throughout their pregnancy until they're stable. And so that's a, a service that we work with as well in terms of um, helping women uh, with pregnancy and, and treating their mental health issues that then contribute to substance abuse issues as well. And our program, I mean, really, we take all comers um, and, and try to focus on you know, the people that need our services the most and try to address some of the issues that would keep women from coming in to get care. You know, so we're working right now on uh, telepsychiatry so we can actually rather than having to have women come into the hospital with their baby and worry about parking and um, but we can just call them and, and connect with them directly in their home so mm -hmm. that's something that Swedish is working on um, you know additionally we're working on uh, getting parking for women um, we serve food there you know so people don't have to worry about bringing in or making lunches or things like that so we really try to make it as easy as possible mm -hmm. I just want to go back to the topic of the women who are addicted to substances, you know, either during pregnancy or after. Do you see a higher rate of postpartum disorders with women who are addicted to substances during a pregnancy? 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and what we found is that if you're able to treat the underlying mental health issues, that their risk of relapse is much, much lower. Um, there's a, Dr. Jim Walsh is the physician who runs the Addiction Recovery Service, has been doing it for a really long time. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap between substance abuse and mood and anxiety symptoms. So I think the substance abuse both causes mood and anxiety or mood and anxiety, um, you know, people self-medicate with substances. And so if you're tackling them both at the same time, it was incredibly helpful. And especially women who are pregnant and who are then gonna have even more stress by having a baby mm -hmm. and, you know, not sleeping well and needing more support or maybe not getting the support they need. Um, you know, the financial stress of having a baby, which is a lot, if you consider all the diapers and you know, formula and things like that. Oh yeah, um, it's expensive, it's big very, business. Babies are big business. Yes, yeah. So it's just a huge, it's a huge stressor for women. And so we definitely try to identify women who are at increased risk of those, those stressors. Do you have programs in place to specifically help pregnant women or recently postpartum women who are poor and vulnerable, who maybe just need an extra, just an extra hand? You know, that's a good question. I mean, our program, so um, in Seattle, uh, or I, I guess in the state of Washington, our program is not covered by Medicaid, um, but Swedish will uh, provide charity care for Medicaid patients so that they can do the program even though it's not covered. And we have approximately, I think, two or three patients per month, which is pretty high because the group tends to be, you know, between five and, and six patients, five to eight patients. Mm -hmm. So in terms of other programs, I know there are other programs, but I can't tell you specifically um, which ones they are. Are there any new studies coming out any treatments coming down the pipeline in this area that we should be on the lookout for or anything going under um, any sort of uh, medical testing right now that could be close to coming of light? Yes, actually, I think, I mean, just in general, I think in terms of depression and anxiety, there's a lot of research going on right now to identify different pathways in the brain that can be treated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, I mean, for example, hormonal treatments. You think that if a lot of these issues are caused by these hormonal shifts that happen, that there should be some kind of treatment to stabilize hormones, and um, at least in a certain population of women. And so there are those medications that are being tested right now. Um, additional things that are being looked at is, you know, different receptors in your brain besides the traditional ones that we look at, like serotonin or dopamine or epinephrine. Um, looking at inflammation, um, looking at sleep things like that. And then I think on a kind of macro level, you know, looking at the power of close follow-up, um, looking at groups, how effective groups are, uh, telepsychiatry so that you can reach patients more frequently and, and make sure that they're doing well. One thing that we find a lot is, you know, you can start patients on medications, but if they're having side effects or if they're wondering if they're effective, um, they'll stop the medications. Uh, and so in order to make sure that patients are on the right medications and that all of that is being addressed, um, you know, being able to reach patients through other means and having them come in. Sometimes we don't hear about postpartum or these disorders until it's very severe. And you mm -hmm. sometimes hear in the news the worst cases. What's been your experience as far as these sort of intense cases and scenarios that you've experienced? You know, a lot. I mean, I think probably almost 100% of all the women that I see refer to, you know, cases on TV where women have killed their babies or something really awful, awful has happened, and, and say, I feel like I'm losing my mind or I'm gonna be, I'm gonna end up on TV, I'm gonna be the one that kills my baby. And usually those women have the OCD type symptoms or intrusive thoughts or just very, very depressed and feeling very hopeless. Um, and, and those are, I mean, those women do end up on TV if they actually end up committing suicide. But the, what we worry about the most is uh, postpartum psychosis, which is much harder to identify and is very different from the intrusive thoughts. You know, again, the intrusive thoughts, women are aware that this is scary, that it's, it's not, you know, they're disturbed by it. Whereas if you um, become psychotic, which is very rare, but women start to develop uh, delusions or they develop, they become disconnected from reality where they don't want to hurt their baby, but they believe that they're saving their baby from a worse outcome, like if their baby's been possessed by a demon or if their husband's trying to poison them or things like that. And women do not identify that that's, the thoughts are necessarily frightening or that they're outside of who they are. Mm -hmm. It really becomes kind of part of this reality that they create for themselves that they're not able to step outside of. 
um, women are very frequently, when you see them like this, are confused or disconnected or paranoid or suspicious. So it's a very different, completely different um, way than the anxiety or OCD. And, and very rare, um, but those are the, the women that we want to get into treatment very quickly because that is an emergency. Where can people find out more about the great work that you're doing? So they can find out more about the work we're doing at future.psjhealth.org. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Zantop, for being here in our studio for Dash Radio. We appreciate it so much. And thank you to our special guest, Tamoria, for joining us today and sharing your story. And thank you to everyone for listening and sending in your wonderful questions. We always appreciate it. We're going to look forward to a future topic with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. And be sure to follow Providence St. Joseph Health on social media. That's at PSJH on Twitter and Instagram and also Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. And if you missed any part of the show, you can always replay it on Dash Radio and share it with your friends. I'm Julie Alexandria here in the Dash Radio studio from Hollywood, California. We'll see you next time.